Good morning, Crossview Church. Good to see you again and good to be with you. As you know, many of you know, I was on sabbatical this summer, and this is my first Sunday back preaching. I just wanted to, on behalf of my family, thank you for that time. It was a precious, precious gift to us. and It was a success. The Lord met us there, and we feel refreshed, and so thank you so much for that gift. We really, really appreciate it. Would you bow your heads with me as I pray really quick? Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your presence is here. And we ask that you would carry us along now in your word and teach us and transform us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a cave in Cologne, Germany uh, during World War II where many Jewish refugees and people fleeing from the Nazi regime hid. And they spent days in this cave. And they didn't discover this cave until the war was over. And when they went through the cave after the war was over, they found an inscription that was carved into the rock of this cave. And the inscription was a poem. And the poem said, I believe in the sun, even when it isn't shining. I believe in love, even when there's no one there. And I believe in God. Yes, I believe in God, even when he is silent. I can't imagine what those people went through. I can't imagine the horror they faced. But when I read that kind of poem and put it together with that kind of circumstance, there's a resiliency there that I really want. There's an anchor there. There's a hope there. You don't get to that place on your own. It takes God to trust God like that. It takes God to be in that place. It takes God to be met in the times of silence. And so my main point this morning is a question, how do we experience God when life seems hard and he seems silent? And I think our scripture is going to speak to this quite a bit. How do we experience God when life is hard and he seems silent? Glenn did an amazing job preaching from Romans 8 last week, and he talked about uh, in verse 18 of chapter 8 of Romans that our sufferings in this life are, are nothing compared to what's coming. And he exhorted us to, in the meantime of life, to have an eternal perspective. And I wanted to stay in that place. I wanted to continue that because the truth is many of us in this room right now are going through really difficult things. Or we've just come out of really difficult things. Or we will be going into really difficult things. And so I wanted to kind of linger in this place and think through how do we experience God when life is hard and he seems silent. Well, to set up where I want this passage to land for us, I, I need to give you kind of a landscape of the Christian life. And we do this from time to time. We do it every uh, membership class at Crossview. We've done it a couple sermons. But there's three theological words that you know that I say every Christian needs to know. And if we know those words, we understand the landscape of what the Christian life and what it's all about. And the first word is justification. Justification means you are declared righteous. This is where the Christian life starts. It's a one-time moment 
where when the Bible says you come and you repent, repent is a beautiful word, means to turn from your sin and selfish ways and turn to God and say, God, I want to turn to you. Forgive me for my sin. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible says when you do that and when you believe, repentance and believe, you have a new life. You are justified. And and that belief is a, God, I want to follow you all my days. I want you to be the leader of my life. In that moment, you are declared righteous. That's what justification means. Meaning that Jesus lived a perfect life for you when he was on earth and then he went to the cross. And when you give your life to Christ in that way, now that perfection that Jesus lived, that righteousness now covers you. So when you stand before a holy God, you don't have to stand in your own merits or your own strengths. You stand in the merit of Jesus Christ. And that's why you're reconciled to God. That's where the Christian life begins. It happens, boom, you're justified. And then we look to what's going to happen in the future. That's glorification. Glorification is that place where we're headed to. When we get to heaven, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more pain. And then when Christ comes again to earth, like he says he will, it says you will have a glorified body. You will be free from the presence of sin and suffering forever. You will live forever under the reign of Christ in the new heavens and new earth, and there won't be any sin or suffering. And that's the hope that we have. That's what Glenn was talking about last week. That's what Paul was looking at when he said that is nothing. I mean, that is so much compared to the sufferings we have. The sufferings we have are light and momentary because that's where we're going. That's a blessed hope that we carry with us. That's glorification. However, every Christian who's in this room who's hearing me, we live in between those two. We live in the place of sanctification. It's this process. Sanctification means being made holy or becoming holy. In justification, you are saved from the penalty of sin. In glorification, you'll be saved from the presence of sin forever. And in sanctification, you are in this process of being saved from the power of sin. Its grip is letting go of you, and you're moving more closer into who God made us to be and who God wants us to be in Christ. It's a process. And it's a process that can't be really measured by the day or the hour. Like tomorrow, I'm going to be more like Jesus. Tuesday, I'll be even more like Jesus than I was on Monday. Thursday, I'll be more like Jesus than I was Tuesday, Monday. No. Sanctification is measured in years or months, long chunks of time. Because sanctification isn't this nice, neat line where we get justified and we are Christians and now every moment was just closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Sanctification looks more like this. There's these high moments and there's these low moments. And though our hope in glorification is triumphant. Though our hope in glorification is a great thing, there's moments in sanctification that don't feel triumphant. And it's okay to acknowledge those. Sometimes I think the church in their quest to hang on to the hope of glorification loses the ability to be real in the painful times. Every service, everything doesn't have to be this triumphal thing. There's times for lament, there's times for pain. There's times for a heartache because we see that in the scripture like we're going to see that today. 
It'd be nice if in sanctification it was instant, wouldn't it? God, take away my pain. Boom, it's gone. God, forgive me for my sin of gossip and pride and arrogance. Take it away. I never want to be like that again. All of a sudden, boom, it's gone. You're never arrogant or prideful. God, take away my anxiety and worry. I'm so full of worry and anxiety. Take it away. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. And you never worry or are anxious again. Wouldn't that be amazing? God, take away my lust. Take away my greed. Take away my jealousy. Boom, they're gone. You never have to deal with that again. Some people would tell you that's what the Christian life is like, but it's not. The Christian life is not like that at all. Why isn't it like that? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Why is a Christian life not like that? I think the Christian life is not like that because if it was like that, we would get to a spot where we no longer need God. We can name whatever we want, whatever we're going through, boom, it's done. Our hearts that are prone to wander would leave the God we love because he just becomes a dispenser of all I need. And then I could go live my life however I want. Take this away, boom, now I can go ahead and live my life. We become our own gods. We would wander. We would at least become people, if that was how it was like, who are obsessed with seeking God's hand and are no longer seeking God's face. Who are obsessed with seeking his hand but are no longer seeking his heart or living for his purpose. We become self-sufficient, self-reliant, no longer in need of God. So I think in a very strange way, this passage we're going to look at and throughout Scripture, the guilt of our sin, sin itself, our sufferings, our pain, our temptations, they keep us longing for God. In a strange way, our guilt, our suffering, our pain and temptations bind us to the heart of God. They tie us to him in a really weird way. Maybe God, in his loving wisdom and kindness, knew that we needed times of heartache and pain. Because sometimes it's in the hardest places of life that we learn to love God the most. I believe in God even when he is silent. Maybe there's this eternal benefit to experiencing God in the silence. It's not easy, is it? It's hard. Pastor and author, theologian John Coe, says this about the process of sanctification. He says, this process of transformation, becoming more and more like Jesus, can be the slowest motion in the entire world. Isn't that true? Why does it take so slow for us as Christians to be more like you. So God in his loving, perfect, fatherly wisdom invites us to this place where in our suffering and our pain, we go to him and we're honest with him. And he loves us to the point where we don't want to leave him. And I truly believe that leaning on God, trusting in God, depending on God, regardless of how we feel, is the only way to find true hope in this fallen world. In today's passage, we find this guy, David, who's a king appointed and established by God in a place where 
He thinks God seems silent, but I think when I read this text that God is not is so close to David that he could never even get closer. I think sometimes when we're in our sufferings and we're in our pain, we are more like Jesus than we are when we're triumphant. Jesus was the man of all sorrows. He knew pain. So we see that David writes this incredible thing, and this psalm that we're going to look at has become very personal to me. It's become a friend, especially in the last three months. David is feeling all sorts of things, and we don't know exactly why, but we see his pain. We see him agonizing over his sin. Some may say, well, that's not a big deal. Everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. Even Christians sin. They aren't perfect. And that's true. Nobody's perfect and everybody does sin, but what makes a Christian different is the Christians hate it when they sin. And David hates it when he sins. And David in his anguish is reaching out to God saying, I want to make sure in the midst of this pain that you and I are still good. I want to make sure that we're connected. I want to make sure that you're not leaving me because I did something stupid, so I want to repent and come close to you. It's the heart we see in David here. Or maybe he's agonizing with mental illness, clinical depression, something going on there. Maybe he's dealing with trauma and the effects of trauma. He was a warrior. He fought battles. There's no doubt he had to have war trauma. He had relational, relational trauma. He also talked about fighting lions and bears. He went after bears and a bear attack. How do you go through that and not have it affect you? So they had some of that for sure. Maybe he's agonizing over a physical illness. That was very common in that day. It could be any of those. And I don't know for sure, but my hunch is it's all of those. It's a combination. You know, we tend to compartmentalize our life into the spiritual life, my social life, my mental, emotional life, my physical life. But you know what? God, it says in the scripture, made us mind, body, soul, and spirit. He made us as a whole. And when one is affected, they're all affected. how he wonderfully made us. So wherever you are today, I hope this psalm becomes a friend to you as well. If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm chapter 6. We're going to go through this and we're going to see David's cry and we're going to see how we can experience God when life is hard and he seems silent. We're going to read the first three verses again. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? David is in anguish. His heart is very troubled. Picture this king on his couch sobbing his guts out. He's in a total meltdown. There's no exaggeration. He's in that place where life is hard, like not just life is hard, but life is like can't get out of bed hard. Have you ever been there? See, David's there. He's in this place. And like I said, we don't know exactly what all put him there, but we do see like there's some sort of spiritual failure 
in his mind in these first three verses where he's reaching out. We don't know what's going on, but what this tells us is that when we are in a place of desperation, it is always a good thing to cry out to God for grace and mercy. That's the first thing we do to experience God in the silence. We cry out to God in grace for his grace and mercy. I don't know exactly what was going on, but David was in this dark place and he wanted to make sure his relationship with God was clear, was reconciled, that was intact, that he was close to God because he said, it's almost like he's saying, I can't bear going through this knowing that you are not with me. So he cries out to God. And if you look at the three verses, one, two, and three, verse one, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Verse two, have mercy on me, Lord, heal me, Lord. My soul is in deep anguish, how long, Lord? He uses the word Lord four times in three verses. When we are suffering as God's people, there's no question what we should do or who we should call out to. We call out to the Lord. God is never, listen to this, listen to this, God is never, ever, ever repelled by your cry for mercy and grace. God is never, ever put off by your cry for mercy and grace. God is never, ever up there saying, when we come and cry for mercy, oh, here we go again. No, I did it. God never does that, ever, 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 ever. That's not God. He will never, ever turn away a heart that's humble and broken towards him. He is gracious and merciful and kind. The Old Testament tells us that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. It says it several different places throughout the Old Testament. It's like the, the, the mission statement of God. People say, oh, God's a God of judgment in the Old Testament. I have no idea where they get that. Because all over the Old Testament it says God is a gracious God, compassionate, slow to anger, full of unending love. And David knew that about God. So he knew he could open up his heart and be real because that's who God is. Jesus is not afraid or hesitant to go into the dark places. He doesn't, he's not repelled by the places of sin in your heart. He's not repelled by the places of suffering in your heart. He's not repelled by the things that you might think, well, that's not exactly a holy thought. You know, Jesus isn't repelled there. He wants to come into that Even though it seems like God is silent, you are not in a place where God can't reach you. Especially when you cry out to him. But when we get to those places, we want the heartache and the pain to end right now, don't we? Bring the comfort now. Emotions come, and if you're in a healthy situation, emotions come and they rise and they peak and then they go down. And Sometimes we want that to happen like this and bring the comfort emotion. Like David, we look at verse 3 at the end, we cry out, how long, Lord, how long, how long is this going to take? Do you see how relevant this is? Do you see how this applies to September 2023? It's amazing. What a gift God gave us in his word. We want that place of resilience, where our trust in God is bigger than what we're feeling emotionally in the current place. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. So how do we get to that place? 
The second thing is to be honest with God about your fear and your pain. We have to be honest with God about our fear and our pain. Look at verses 4 to 7. David says, Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow because they fail. They fail because of all my foes. Depression, exhaustion, pain, confusion. At this level that David's experiencing is beyond self-help and good advice. David is motivated to turn to God because he remembers something amazing about God. He remembers something that we see in verse 4. He says that he asked God to save him because of his unfailing love. Now that's a word in Hebrew that I absolutely love. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It means hesed. And hesed is one of those cool Hebrew words where you can't just translate it into English with one word. There's no one word in English that captures what the word hesed means. Hesed is this promised presence of God in your life that's full of love. Hesed is all these things. It's covenantal loyalty. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's kindness. It's God's goodness. It's God's mercy. It's God's love. It's God's compassion. And it's wrapped up in this thing, this, this promise that says, he will never ever leave you. None of this will ever leave you if you're my son or my daughter. It's a love that will not let you go. It's this covenant promise from God based upon his character of perfection and holiness and who he is. This is how he's going to relate to you. And the NIV calls it unfailing love. One of my favorite Bible nerd things to do is look at how Hesed is translated in other English translations. And the Christian Standard Bible translates it faithful love. And the New American Standard translates it loving kindness. And the English Standard Version translates it steadfast love. It's all this idea of this hesed. This is who God is. And David knew this about God. He knew this is what he is like. And when he knew that about God, it like opened him up to be honest. If this is what God is like, if he's not going to let me go, if his love and compassion and kindness are covenanted to me, promised to me, I can be whoever I am and he will not leave God creates a safe place with Hesed. He creates a place where we can be vulnerable and honest. What an amazing God. Verse 5 says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? David's kind of going into a bargaining at this point. And you can see he feels safe, so he's letting his guards down, so he's not being religious. He probably knows you're not supposed to bargain with God, but he doesn't care. He's just letting it all out because he's in this place with him and his father, his heavenly father, and he's letting this out. The Old Testament, people in the Old Testament did not have as clear a picture of Christian death as we do today. Post the resurrection of Jesus, we know that death is a doorway to life and doorway to newness. And the people of the Old Testament, they knew that in part. There's parts of Daniel that say that. There's other parts that say that. But it definitely was not as crystal clear as what we have today. And so David didn't have a clear idea, but what he did know was, I know that I can't do much for you when I'm in the grave. So save me, pull me from this place, and God, I promise I'll do all these things. 
I think that's what's going on there. And then there's something very interesting in verse 7. In this hard ache place of verses 4 to 7. He says, my eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Now when I read that with some reflection, it grabbed me. Because if you know something about King David, his foes are what motivate him. His foes are what wake him up. His foes are what keep him on purpose with God. See, David would not tolerate injustice towards God or injustice towards God people. And so when enemies did that, David rose up and it was his mission to take them out. David rose up to the battles God called him to fight for his name and his glory and, and the people. So his foes were something that motivated David. He was a protector. He was a warrior. But here we see something different. Here it says that his eyes are weak and he's full of sorrow and they fail him because of his foes. It seems as almost his foes have got the best of him here. It's not the same motivation that it was. His resiliency has taken a hit. He's desperate. He's lonely. He's hurting. It's in this place, in this moment, that you don't pray nice prayers anymore. You begin to pray desperate prayers. You move from, God, take away the pain, to, God, why does this hurt so bad? When we get to that place, when we get to that place of honesty with our prayers, that's the place God shows up. That's the place that God is close to. That's the place where God often makes himself real. When we're honest about our fear, our pain, our guilt, our temptation, it's often that place is the beginning of transformation. I just want to take a little bit of a side note that will help us as a church family or will help you even as any believer, actually. When we find somebody in the place of life of verses 4 to 7 where they're sobbing their couch with their tears, where they're in anguish, where they're in pain, where they're in grief, where they're in loss, where they're struggling and suffering... When we find somebody in that place, we have to be very, very careful about something. See, in our culture, we like to fix things. We like to accomplish things. We like to say, look at what I did. We like to make all things better. But when we see someone in pain and grief or fear, we often feel like, I got to do something to fix that or make it better. And that's like the worst thing we can do with somebody who's living in verses 4 to 7. When we are with people who are suffering or are going through excruciating pain or grief or loss, it's not the place to give advice. It's not the place to attempt to make them feel better because you won't. It's not the place to explain why this tragedy happened because the truth is you don't know. We don't know. It's best not to say something or try to do something to make them better because in living in Psalm 6, all those strategies will fail. It's better to pause the desire to fix, 
Pause the desire to teach. Pause the desire to do something. And instead, just be present. The Jewish faith has this amazing practice they call Shiva. And Shiva is a a way that the Jewish people deal with mourning a loss, a, a death. And in Shiva, there's seven days of mourning. And in that seven days, if you go to the person's house and they're experiencing grief and loss, you're not allowed to talk to them unless they first talk to you. So oftentimes you go into a house of someone who's mourning during Shiva and you'll sit at the couch and you'll sit and cry with them for a few minutes. And then you get up and you leave. And your presence is the gift. Your presence is the comfort. You don't have to say something to fix it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to teach it. You don't have to try to make something feel better. You just sit there and be with them in the pain. You cry together and you leave. And if you have to speak words, you do it in a limited way. I'm sorry you're going through this. I love you. I'm thinking of you. Know that I'll be praying for you. No fixing, no making them feel better, no explaining, and for goodness sake, no teaching. Just be with them. Even if they went through something that you went through yourself, you never want to say to someone, I know exactly what you're feeling because I went through that. Because you don't know what they're feeling because you're not them. And they're going to approach that trial completely different than how you did it. You don't comfort people in this place with advice, counsel, or explanation, but with presence and love and prayer and very few words. And it's our presence that embraces them in that pain and allows them to do what David did, to go to the Lord and let him be the great comforter. I would rather they be comforted by God than by me. So how else do we experience God in these dark, silent places? Finally, we remember God. Look at verses 8 to 10. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Something happened to David between verse 7 or 8. When we read it together in one shot, it almost sounds like this is totally disconnected. Is he like coming apart? But there's something that happened. As he cried out to God, as he was honest with God, as he poured out his soul to God, there's a shift because now he begins to trust in God. His trust is renewed because not because his circumstances are going to totally change in a moment, but because he knows it's now in God's hands. Verse 9, God has heard my prayer. The peace and assurance that can come on a soul that is in distress and pain when they know God has heard their prayer. He heard me. In the rest of 9 and 10, basically what David is saying is, God's going to do whatever God wants. And anybody who's coming against God will not stand. But God has heard my cry. Pastor and author Dane Ortland says this, Amid the storm of his life in this moment, David looks not out at his circumstances, nor in at his own internal resources, but up 
to the Lord of mercy. Unloading the burdens of his heart in his prayer, David does not apply a formula to his pain, but rather this, God and God alone. The only place we find hope in this fallen world is when we turn to, depend on, and trust in God. The only place. And I believe as we cry out to God, he hears and supplies what we need. He brings the people to pray for us. He gives us this true hope and sense of encouragement. So how do we experience God when life is hard and he seems silent? We cry out to him for grace and mercy. We're honest with him about our fear and pain. And we remember God and we let our trust be renewed. Maybe you're here today. And life is really, really hard. Maybe you're here today and life isn't that can't get out of bed hard. I'm glad you're here. It's okay. Run to God. Call out to God. Be honest with him. Forget the religious rules of how you think you should do it and just do it. Call out to God. Allow him to meet you where you are and he will hold you and he will carry you in that place. You know, part of the reason David was so open and honest because he wrote this, because he knew this about God, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Are you feeling brokenhearted? Are you feeling like your spirit's been crushed? Run to God. I want to close with this one simple invitation. In a moment, I'm going to give us all a time of silence. And here's what I want you to think about in that time of silence. I want you to think about this. What do you want to tell God right now? What do you want to tell God? Not what you think you're supposed to tell God. Not what people told you you should tell God. Not what you wish you could have the guts to tell. What do you want to tell God? In the pure honesty of your heart, what do you want to tell God? Now, when we go to the silence, pay attention. I don't want you to tell him. I just want you in the silence to think about what you want to tell him. Telling him will come later, but to get to the real truth of our desire, sometimes we need reflection. Sometimes we need to think through. Sometimes we have to scale and pull back the residue of the world we live in and think about this. I really want you to think about what would you really want to tell God right now? David did that in Psalm 6. He told him exactly what he wanted to tell him. What do you want to tell God? Take some time now and think about that.
Maybe you get to this place and you still don't know. It's okay. Take more time later and think about what do you really want to tell God. And then I encourage you, before you put your head on the pillow tonight or tomorrow night, carve out a chunk of time. It doesn't have to be long. 10, 15 minutes where you can get alone. And the beauty and the quietness of that communion place between you and your God. And tell him what you want to tell him. You're not going to shake him. He's not going to turn you back. He's going to love you like the perfect heavenly father that he is. And in that place, something precious will start. In that place, something amazing will happen. So I encourage you to do that.